I have never piloted a motorcycle. I don't understand motorcycles, and I don't even like them particularly. My reading on the subject is limited to Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and to the references to riding in Hunter S. Thompson's books. But motorcycles have an undeniable connection to philosophy and to the limits of human endeavor. In recent years, I've started to watch MotoGP, the Grand Prix of motorcycle racing, which is passing strange because, as I say, I don't like motorcycles really. Plus, I have next to no interest in sports, but... A good friend watches MotoGP, and I began to watch too, and here we are. I think I'm now a fan. I still don't much care about the technical details of motorcycles, and the winner of any race barely registers. But I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated with watching what the rider with a huge and complicated team behind him can make that motorcycle do. The riders and their teams push those machines to the absolute limits of physics. And occasionally, they push them beyond those limits, and then there are crashes. Here is what Hunter S. Thompson wrote about the pushing, about the limits, and about what he called the edge. This is from his book Hell's Angels, The Strange and Terrible Saga of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs. The good doctor said this, The edge, there is no honest way to explain it, because the only people who really know where it is are the ones who have gone over. The others, the living, are those who pushed their control as far as they felt they could handle it, and then pulled back or slowed down or did whatever they had to do when it came time to choose between now and later. But the edge is still out there. And today on Cheftimony, we're going to talk about the edge with sourdough. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Cheftimony Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome to your Friday, and thank you for joining me right here for the Cheftimony Podcast. It feels like it's time for the weekend, doesn't it? If you're new to the show, Cheftimony is my way of staying connected to the culinary world now that I have stopped working in that world professionally. In the years before I worked in kitchens, and again now, I practiced and again practiced law, and that combination of careers means that the two groups I know best, and the two groups I know the most people in, are chefs and lawyers. So those are the people I talk to on Cheftimony, always with a focus on food. If you're looking for a law podcast, this is not it, but you do have lots and lots of options. The Lawyer Life podcast is one I really enjoy. Anyway, to today's topic. Just like last episode, today is all about sourdough, and I'm delighted again to be joined by my friend and co-host Greg Sugiyama. These days, Greg works in software, but years ago we cooked together on the line at Vancouver's Burdock & Co. restaurant. Greg is the friend I turn to when I need sourdough advice. He's a great baker, but also a deep thinker, which makes him the perfect co-host for this episode as we explore the more philosophical, metaphysical side of sourdough. I think the phrase we finally settled on, you'll hear it later in today's episode, is this, sourdough, colon, a meta-commentary on human existence. And that, I hope, explains me going on about motorcycles at the beginning of the show today. 
There really is something about cooking that allows us to explore the edge. You'll hear Greg and me talking about that today, particularly in relation to sourdough bread, of course, and also to gnocchi. But fear not, today is not all philosophy. We've also got some more amazing sourdough baking guests, and they will be dropping by to share their stories and their tips with you. Some great advice is coming your way. Before we get there, I do want to share something with you as I have in past episodes, just something I find interesting and and think that you might too. Like the other things I've shared, this is not at all food-related. It's just something I think is really well done. It's called Voicemails to the Universe. That is also the handle on Instagram, at Voicemails to the Universe. And here's what their profile has to say. What you always wanted to say but never got the chance to. Voicemails to our loved ones lost. Sent by you, designed by us. Leave a message. It's new. There are two entries so far, and I just highly recommend that you check it out. The audio production is stunning, and the whole idea is unlike anything I've seen or or heard before. I think it's great. And, bonus, the area code for the phone number is 702, so you just know there's a connection to that special place in my heart, Las Vegas. Voicemails to the universe. Oh, and I just have to report, on the show today, you'll hear us talking about my failed attempt at sourdough porridge bread, but also about me looking forward to my next attempt. Well, I have made that next attempt now, and it worked really well. There's uh, a picture, just one? Yes, just one picture on Instagram. Anyway, the sourdough porridge bread came out really well the second time. Thank you to my co-host, Greg, for his advice. All right, that is enough from me. Here we go with episode 46 of the Chef Demoni podcast. This is Sourdough 2.0. Greg, thank you for being back in the co-host seat here on Chef Demoni. Thanks for joining me for Sourdough 2.0. Oh, thank you for having me back. Glad I have the privilege. Very excited. (laughs) Very well said. Let's on this episode, before we get to our guests clips, let's get into the why behind sourdough. I said last time that we would, uh, and we did on sourdough 1.0, we focused on the nuts and bolts of baking. And we'll have some comments on that for sure as we go through our guests tips and advice today. But I thought you and I could get a little bit into the uh, into the why what the, the what's it all about with sourdough. And one of the things that you said the last time we were talking that struck me was maybe one of the reasons that sourdough has taken off during the pandemic is a function of time, which is to say that although the active steps in producing a a loaf or two of, of bread don't take that long, the entire process sure does. So what are your thoughts on that, Greg, on, on the function of time in sourdough and, and, and what impact that has on or what relationship that has to the pandemic rise in this as a hobby pursuit pastime? I mean, it's the perfect hobby for being at home all the time. It helps time pass. I mean, anything like whenever, whenever you look forward to anything with anticipation, it seems to, I mean, in some cases, seems to extend the, uh, I guess, observed temporal existence but also it can give you satisfaction it can give you purpose in a day i'm always excited to wake up and bake sourdough and that is saying something because i've never transitioned to being a morning person i guess too many years in kitchens i guess but like if i'm excited if i'm excited i'm very easily motivated and after all these years it's still 
like Christmas morning, I get I, I get to wake up and go check on these uh, these loaves that I've been heading to for the last last while. And it's always it's still exciting to see them nicely fermented in the fridge, put them into a, a hot pan, and then watch them rise. I yeah, and it's it's like golf, you know. I, I was thinking about this the more the more we uh when we talked about this last session and then afterwards. It's a very difficult pathway to mastery, and I don't think anybody ever really gets there. I think it was Myra who said that sourdough will let you know when you've failed or when you've messed up, and it, it constantly does that. It, I mean, even when you think you've got it, it falls apart for some weird reason, and it gives you something to work towards, which and that motivation, I think, can be a big, big help, especially during a time when the alternative is to be stuck at home with your thoughts in kind of a kind of like a sad, gloomy time in human history, you know? Right. And it's, I think that's exactly it. It gives you something to focus on and it is continually humbling, I find. And continually, I guess there's, because it's continually humbling, to your point, it doesn't matter how long you do it or how good you get. There's always somewhere else to go. There's something else to learn. The example you gave is a good one. It's like golf. It's like mastering wine tasting or getting into meditation or whatever the human pursuit is. There's always something more. Just before we started recording, uh, you and I were talking about my latest humbling experience with porridge bread. And so two things fell out of that for me. One was I was really disappointed with the loaves. They were looked flat as pancakes and were, but they were super delicious. So at the end of the day, I'm still happy. I've got some nice bread toasted up and it tastes good. A little dense, but it's uh, but it's definitely tasty. But two... I'm really excited to try that again. And having spoken to you and gotten some specific tips on things I should try with that recipe, which is basically boils down, dear listener, to keep a close eye on hydration levels is I think my key takeaway. But that gives me a whole other project to look forward to. So I can't wait to get started with it. And I'm guessing you find the same. You, you probably have fewer and less spectacular failures than I do these days, but there's always something more to do. Uh, it still happens. They just don't end up on the internet. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I think this just speaks to the things that I tend to be interested in or the things that tend to draw my attention. This process, right? This constant process towards perfection. It's this ever like eluding goal that will never, it's like chasing a carrot on a stick. Like, you're never going to hit it, but it tends to motivate me. And I think I think it motivates a lot of people. It's very similar to cooking. The, the process is the same. You You have an idea. And your idea in this case is the endpoint, the idea of a loaf of bread. And then you you have what you think are the tools and the method to get there. And then you find out along the way if it works or if it doesn't. And then I think this isn't this hobby might not be for you if you get discouraged by those failures. Like if that is enough to convince you to to just try something else, then maybe this might not be the thing that's gonna wake you up in the morning. But I think for a lot of people that yeah, that is well said. It's that drive to to like get it right the next time or to to make improvements piques a lot of people's curiosity and i think it's uh i think it's a big part of why it's so enjoyable for so many people there's also this concept that we were kicking around a little earlier as well about the edge and this is one of the things that i find interesting in a few pursuits and again i think it's sourdough is a is a window to any other human pursuit because at some level, they're all like this. But what do I mean by the edge? I mean, you can push it just as far as you can possibly go. And sometimes you push it too far. The other example that I think about quite often in a cooking context is gnocchi. And and I'm always trying to ride that edge between using enough flour so that the potato dumplings stick together, but not using any more than that because then they get chewy and heavy. 
And sometimes that means I get beautiful, light, fluffy, cloud-like gnocchi. And sometimes it means they fall apart in the pot and it was an effort that didn't produce anything. What are your thoughts on on that concept in sourdough? And, and, and maybe in particular, the, the thought that comes to mind or the similar example is hydration. People pushing these crazy hydration levels, trying to get something out of that, the open crumb, I guess. I mean, it's like kind of like a nice meta commentary on human nature, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, like ex- excellence is kind of achieved by pushing those boundaries. Like, I don't know, the first person to go into space didn't have like a sure guarantee that they weren't going to die on the way up. <laughs> I mean, I guess you, you, you don't have it that in anything, but like they, they were pushing that boundary of exploration and they were pushing that boundary of, I guess, human capability to really see what they were capable of. And I mean, that, that might be a bit of a far stretch for bread because you're not pushing the boundaries. of. <laughs> we're really making sourdough into something here <laughs> at this point, but you know, if you boil it down to human tendency, it's true. Sometimes you just have to step like you have, you have to take a skill set, trust in yourself and, you know, take it out of that comfort zone. The gnocchi thing is a really good example because gnocchi is one of those things that I pride myself on, especially working in Italian restaurants for so long, but it's definitely a dance and no one will ever give you a precise recipe. And if they say they have a perfect ratio, they're lying to you. It is a constant dance where you are just feeling and you are trusting in your skills and instincts to know when you've added enough flour, when it's been kneaded enough, you also need to know if you're working too slowly because cold gnocchi equals gummy gnocchi. And bread can be like that too. With all the precision that we, we and the importance I, I personally put in precision instruments like temperature and weight, there's also a bit of like, you know, that, that cowboy spirit where you're just kind of like, you have your, your six shooters out and you're shooting blanks in the air and you're, you're just riding by it, riding by your chaps, just kind of just going with it and like I, I think I think I said this in our last session, some of the best bakers in the world would never touch a scale. They they just, you know, bake these beautifully rustic loaves and they, they're full of personality. And that's only because they push their capabilities as far as they were able to and they've come to an understanding on their own of what makes good bread and what they want to produce. And I, I think it's a personal thing for everyone. I mean, it sounds a little wishy-washy, but it, it really is. It's, you know, it's an expression of self, like any form of cooking. It's a love language. You're, you're giving something out into the world to be consumed. So you have to make it personal. I think so. And I, th- I think to your point about, about the six shooters, I like that. There is, no matter how much order we want to bring into the process and no matter how much precision we want to introduce... There's just, and we can control certain things, time, temperature, weight, that kind of thing. But then there's a whole bunch of stuff that's just beyond our control, right? Now, the the examples that come to mind are variability in flour, just because the brand that you bought two months ago worked in a certain ratio doesn't mean that the same brand that you bought a week ago is going to work that same way. And then the atmosphere, we're all dealing with weather very directly when it comes to sourdough. So speaking of grains, Greg, can you give us a little background? Because I know you bake a lot with freshly milled grains. For my benefit and for everyone who's listening, just talk a little bit about the the challenges and then the benefits of using freshly milled grains. So I don't know, I don't remember which which decade it was, but there was this real push towards whole grain everything, brown rice, whole wheat, dumpsters, that, that I think it was like the late 90s or the early the early 2000s. But I think that really turned a lot of people off from whole grains and rightly so because it was by and large pretty disgusting. Like the products that were coming out were really just mediocre. Like these whole grain passes that tasted like cardboard and brown rice is just, I don't know, maybe it's the Japanese in me, but brown rice is 
gross. I, I would rather have <laughs> good rice and like work off the calories than have to eat, yes. have to eat that garbage rice. But <laughs> whole grains, on the other hand, are this entirely different world, especially if you're working with good organic grains. Flavor is uh, exaggerated and over these, these long periods of fermentation. So you have these beautiful grains that have wonderful characteristics, uh, flavor being the first one we'll talk about, where you can get some like crazy nuances in your bread by just having different grains. One of the ones that I think most people are becoming quite familiar with as it's pushed by a lot of restaurants and bakers is Red Fife, uh, Manitoba Red. It's a, it's a Canadian grain, or it's, a, it's like an old Canadian grain that I believe was brought from Germany when people came to Canada to settle it. But it's been here as long as I guess like the colonial settlers have been in the Manitoba area, but it's pretty ubiquitous with Canadian history and it's delicious. And it's, it's right in that sweet spot. It's like a 14% ish uh, wheat protein grain. So it's perfect as a bread flour. You can't see my air quotes, but I also hate the term bread flour. And it's, it's got this very, very unique flavor. And aroma, I'd say the aroma is probably the most distinct part about it. If you're baking a red fife loaf, you know it's a red fife loaf. It has this almost green sprouted grain aroma to it when it comes out of the oven. And it's a whole grain, but it's also delicious. There's a lot of technique that goes into using higher percentages of whole grains. Long autolyses, higher hydration, it usually takes a bit more of a uh, skilled hand or a bit more experience uh, or intuitive understanding of what bread needs to feel like. But the rewards are well worth it. Another personal favorite addition of mine and most bakers is rye. A very small addition of rye will work like steroids in your fermentation. I'm talking like nothing. I use in a in a one kilogram re uh, recipe, I'll usually add in a percentage of probably 10 to 15 grams of rye. And it's it's noticeable when it's not in there. It's night and day. And wow. maybe there's so some ten, biochemists ten... out there. Yeah. 10 to 15 grams. So that's uh, what, now you're going to see that I wasn't lying when I said I'm bad at, bad at math, but that's one to one and a half percent, like very yeah. little. Yeah. Very, very little. I mean, it, the overall and the overall grain percentage will, um, it'll, it'll vary a little bit based on how much whole grain and what the hydration is. But uh, because it's a low gluten flour or a low gluten grain, it's not necessarily going to give you a ton of body, but it gives you flavor if you add it in large quantities. But for my purposes, it's just for that added fermentation bioavailability so if there's any chemists out there or biochemists who understand uh what's happening with this grain and fermentation please let me know I, i'm very curious it's interesting i know our first guest and we'll go to him soon is Maurizio leo and he talks about i was i was reading his sourdough creation page recently because a friend was looking for some advice and i thought i would send him to Maurizio's site and he's um yeah big advocate of rye in the in the starter process which makes sense right there's just there is something in there it it holds on to yeast or bacteria better than other other grains it seems yeah, there's some purists out there that will only use rye flour in their starter. I'm sure you've come across those suggestions before in the in the numerous like bread blogs and bread articles and books. Some people really advocate for a whole grain starter, white flour starter, but I've definitely come across people that preach the preach the benefits of a all rye starter. I tried keeping one for a while. I just got really tired of grinding grain every day to feed my starter. <laughs> um, and that is another note when you're working with whole grains because they are not treated. They have a very short shelf life once they've been once they've been grounded to flour. That being said, as well, there's a lot more 
life in them. So when you are fermenting something that is uh, full of nutrients and hasn't been modified to uh, be sterile, your your breads, your fermentation, and your, the quality of your bread increases exponentially. Well, listen, Greg, let's get to the guests. And as I say, our first stop is somebody we both, well, I can't say we know him, but somebody we uh, we both follow, Maurizio Leo. Uh, and Maurizio is, well, we'll hear directly from Maurizio now. Hello, my name is Maurizio Leo, and I'm the baker behind theperfectloaf.com. And I'm actually an engineer by trade. I went to school to get my master's degree in computer science, and I co-founded the company that created Skyview via app for Android and Apple devices. And since I am an engineer, I'm mostly sitting at my computer all day writing code. So about 10 years ago, I rather serendipitously fell into baking sourdough bread and was completely taken by the process, the science behind it the dedication to the craft, the observation needed to see how the dough is developing in a particular day and adjust as necessary. And I think the foundation of science behind fermentation kind of marriaged with the craft of the process of baking bread really just inspired me. And I've been pretty much obsessed with it ever since. For new bakers, I would say my biggest piece of advice would be to be observant, watch the dough, how it's transforming through the process and adjust as necessary. When I first started baking, I kind of just mixed everything together and went exactly by the clock. So if bulk fermentation was three hours, then I went three hours. But as you grow as a baker, you learn that you need to adjust and adapt based on how the dough is doing that day. And that observation kind of becomes a second nature as you um, bake more and more. If it weren't for baking sourdough bread and kind of my obsessive focus on it, I don't think I would have had any of the interactions that I have now with many of the bakers that I talk to online or many that I've visited or met in classes. There have been a couple notable places I've been to bake. Um, one of them was to bake with Jeffrey Hamelman in Washington, when I attended a King Arthur flower class. Another one was when I went to Bellegarde Bakery in New Orleans to co-teach a class with Grayson. And one of my more recent classes I attended was at the San Francisco Baking Institute, where I took the modern bread theory class, which was incredible. And I also met some amazing bakers from all over the world. And so I'd say... Sourdough, not only has it given me incredible food and a way to eat more healthy at home, it's also been a way for me to meet an incredible host of bakers all around the world. And where to find me? You can find me at my website. It's theperfectloaf.com, where I post recipes, techniques, and guides to baking sourdough, kind of focused on the home kitchen. And I'm also really active on Instagram, and my handle is just my name. It's at Maurizio, M-A-U-R-I-Z-I-O. Thank you very much. Well, first, I have to say there's no real wonder why you like this guy, Greg. He's not only a sourdough 
aficionado, but uh, Maurizio is a software engineer as well. So it seems that you guys share a couple of passions or a couple of fields of interest, at least. Yeah, you know, there's any there's a reason why I like this guy's content. This is interesting to me because when I was learning to make sourdough, theperfectloaf.com was the first bit of sourdough media that I consumed. I guess shout out to you and your SEO skills, Maurizio, because uh, it was the first it was the first result that came up for me. And this was this was I'm not trying to be like that, but this was well before it was popular <laughs> and it was a cool thing to be doing. And that's not to my credit. This is just it was a circumstance that led me down this road. But yeah, I, I came across this blog and I resonated with everything about it, just because it was very methodical and the ratios were weight in grams and it was an American blog. So that blew me away. And also just the craft that goes into his blog. It, it astounds me how, like, I'm assuming he spends a lot of time curating his articles because the, the photography is wonderful. The blogs are lengthy and detailed. There's, there's good resources backing up his process, photographs. Uh, it's a, it's a really good place for beginners and experienced bakers alike. I think there's a, there's a wealth of knowledge there and you are doing yourself a disservice if you bake sourdough and you have not checked out his website. I agree. I go there regularly. And one of the points that struck me in Maurizio's clip was this marriage that he talks about between the the science behind fermentation being married with the craft of bread baking. And maybe that's, you know, to our earlier discussion on the existential underpinnings of sourdough, if I can give it that lofty uh, language, it's, uh, again, part of what makes it so fun, right? You can tinker and learn and be precise, but you also have to develop experience and art. Yeah, no, that is that is very true. I also found I also found what he had said about being a software engineer interesting and bread baking kind of like fitting into his lifestyle. That's definitely one thing I've noticed about being at home and sitting all day is on the days where I'm making sourdough, it's a nice forced break every 30 minutes. Like I have to get up and check on my bread. I can't just like leave it. So it prevents me from... I don't being glued to a screen for too long. But and yeah, if, if, sit, if sitting really is the new smoking, it's that's another reason why bread is good for it. Right. And carbs are slowly coming back in, right? Gluten is not the new smoking anymore. It, it is sitting. <laughs> We're just going to make that abundantly clear. Yeah. And that, that is, that is interesting because he being, being a developer and a, it's a certain type of person and a certain type of brain generally that leads towards, you know, software engineering, which is methodical and, there are, there's, there's rules and there are things you do and you don't do. It's way less of that kind of intuitive, willy-nilly, rustic style approach that a lot of really good bread kind of warrants and necessitates. And I, I don't know, I don't know how else to describe it aside from just that it's feeling versus observing. I, I know I've talked about it earlier, but some people are really good at just feeling out their bread and then producing wonderful loaves. And some people are really good at observing and replicating uh, and being very precise with how they bake their bread. He definitely strikes me as someone that has a nice middle ground there or likes to to tread that line along the middle ground. Well said. Yes, I agree. One of the other things that I thought was interesting, and this is connecting back to some of our guests' comments from the last episode, which uh, which is around this notion of community. And Maurizio talked about uh, experiences with Jeffrey Hamelman in Washington, with Grayson Gill in New Orleans, doing a class at the San Francisco Baking Institute. So I'm curious, do you have any dream destinations, Greg, related to sourdough? Is there a bakery that you would love to go either stage at or just buy the bread? Are there people that you would love to get together and teach a class with or take a class from any 
dream destinations on sour on the sourdough front i mean is it contrived of me to say that i would like to go to tartine bakery <laughs> i don't i don't well maybe but it's still that doesn't I mean it's been. a bad thing no fair that is fair i i haven't been i haven't actually ever been to san francisco and i don't have any plans of traveling across the border right now because it's anytime soon yeah yeah but but i would love i would love to go to tartine bread i mean i think i may have missed I think I may have missed the boat on that one. I think it's become a bit of a Disneyland, not to their fault at all. They deserve the success that they are experiencing, but I also don't want to wait in line for four hours. So, so maybe not that I know his old, uh, and by he, I mean, Chad Robertson, his old, uh, I guess like second in commander lead baker, uh, Richard Hart has opened a bakery in Copenhagen. And I always liked his bread. I thought it was really lovely. And uh, an expert art cook is actually working in his bakery right now. I just found out in Copenhagen. So in Copenhagen. Yeah, it would a be a nice excuse to go to Copenhagen, but b uh, eat some tasty treats. Yeah, there's so much good bread out there. I would take. I would. I would. You know, snap at the bait for anything. The one thing that I would really like is more experience and time working with wood fire and doing bread with wood fire. I've had short exposure to it, but. In my opinion, it's the most romantic way to bake bread. And everything about it is just so idealistic. The horrible hours, the like the tending to this unpredictable flame, waning temperatures, just kind of going with the flow. It's very it, it speaks to me in a way that I find very appealing. So who knows? I transition careers a lot. Maybe when I'm fifty I'll become a I'll become a sourdough baker for a living and I'll build a wood fired oven. I like that idea. Knowing somebody quite well who just turned 50. Yeah, I would encourage now, you to Now's do your that. chance, yeah. Now, <laughs> this is true. Well, let's go next to, uh, so we're, we're leaving New Mexico where Maurizio is, and our next guest is closer to home at least most of the time. She, Michelle, is on Vancouver Island, but she also bakes at sea, which I find fascinating. So let's go now and hear from... I love this Instagram handle, Michelle Boatbaker. Hi, I'm Michelle, and I'm a home baker living on Vancouver Island. I created my sourdough starter in early 2018 after my husband suggested that it might be something fun for me to try, as he knows how much I love baking, and our grocery store had recently stopped carrying the, the one we liked. So... We both had no idea what we were in for at the time and how much I would come to fall in love with the process of making sourdough bread. I usually bake once a week when I can, and I have even made sourdough bread on our boat. Uh, after creating my starter, I found it overwhelming to actually go from, from there to diving in and baking with it. And I joined a forum online and I asked a lot of questions from other bakers. Everyone was so helpful, but I still remained unsure as to when I could use my starter and how to go about the process as I was getting so many different answers. And I finally found a teacher and a course online and I followed her instructions and videos to the letter. So I was more than delighted when my first loaf of bread that I made after I took her course <laughs> turned out beautifully. And what I learned from that course was that there are so many different methods of making sourdough bread, and there's not just one right way. And if I was to share a tip with anybody starting out like myself, I would say pick one teacher and one method and stick to that until you get the hang of it. Ask questions of other bakers who are doing a similar method to what you're doing 
And that will cut down on a lot of confusion. And I, w I really wish I'd known that when I started out. If you find mm. one method that works for you, stick with it and get till you get the hang of the basics before you branch out. I've actually gone back to the basics recently because I found that I was going through the motions and doing the process, but I wasn't really paying attention to what was happening with my dough. And now I'm trying to learn more about fermentation and shaping and not being so focused on hydration and creating, creating an open crumb. And when you look at the internet, it's often perceived as the holy grail. And I think it's unfair to new bakers because it's not part of a recipe, but it's part of a skill set. And just like any other skill, you need to sort of get your basics down first before you start worrying about high hydration and open crumb, or I think you can really open yourself up for, for frustration and, and no wonder. I'm grateful to so many accomplished bakers whom I've met on social media who inspire me with their knowledge and skills. And I hope you will also be inspired and I look forward to meeting you there. I am at Michelle Boat Baker. See you there. Greg, I think Michelle has some really great advice here, particularly for people who are looking to get into sourdough, perhaps have, have never tried it, looking to do it for the first time. And perhaps the biggest piece of advice that she gives, which I think is a great one, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it, is pick one method, pick one teacher, and just stick with them at the beginning. What do you think? I agree with that sentiment. I think it's been echoed by a couple other people we've heard from as well. Really just find that, yeah, find that totem, you know, that, that waypoint where you are comfortable and you, you have reference to because it, it's where you'll branch out from. But very much, you know, this, what is the saying? Don't learn to run before you can walk or crawl. Yeah, start crawling first and, and just get really good at crawling. Crawl the heck out of it and then just graduate to walking. And then, you know, once you're there, you can start to branch out and try some new things. I actually really enjoy how she's just developed this part of her lifestyle out of necessity, essentially. She went to a, a, her grocery store, her local grocery store, and they just didn't have the bread. Didn't have the bread. And they wanted to eat. So yeah. they're like, well, fine, we'll make it ourselves. And now, now you have this thing that is a part of your life. And it's wonderful because I think that's how, how it happens to a lot of people. But yeah, no, really, really good advice. But she she mentioned something else and I wanted to ask you about that, the, the kind of like the delight that she felt when she finally like, when she finally got it, when she got like a good loaf to come out or her first loaf. I very vividly remember the first moment when something clicked for me in the process and I started to understand or begin to understand what I was doing. And I produced like my first loaf that actually looked like sourdough. Do you, do you remember that moment? Excellent question. And I can remember, I don't, I, so, so sorry, the short answer is I don't remember a specific moment, but what I do remember, it's funny how memory works is an image uh, that I looked back on, which was my first loaf. So I'm, it must have dawned on me at the time. I just don't remember specifically going, that is the one. But I took a million pictures of this one loaf of sourdough. And it had just, it had actually risen. And it had, an, uh, you know, not spectacular, but it had an ear on it. And so everything had worked at least to some degree better than it ever had in the past. What happened I, with What happened with yours? I, I mean, I, I was producing a lot of things that looked like yellow potatoes, <laughs> you know, very similar. It, it, it felt like homemade bread, not really understanding how to like develop gluten, uh, kind of soda bread-y in texture. Yeah, no. And it was 
plug out to Maurizio at the Perfect Loaf again when I found his content. And I just really started like reading through and paying attention to his process and then just trying to mimic it as best I could at home. And it was one or two loaves. And then all of a sudden I started to see results that looked and tasted like sourdough. So I was, like yeah. And then, and that, that was my waypoint though. Cause then I, I just hit my head against that recipe again and again and again for months and months until I could consistently do it. So I agree with Michelle a hundred percent in that regard. Practice makes perfect, I guess. But an, and another thing she said to me that I, or not to me, but to us during this uh, recording is get off, get off social media. With, stop, stop informing your metric for success by what these professional bakers are, are able to achieve because they are professional bakers. They have a lot of experience and talent and you're not going to bake bread that looks like them. And that's okay because as right. we both know, ugly bread can still be delicious and it's part of that process and learning. Don't chase that open crumb. Just work on work on making work on making good bread first and the crumb will the crumb will follow <laughs> the crumb will reveal itself one thought that strikes me with with uh, michelle's advice that you liked as i do uh, to pick a method and stick to it is not that i want to discount any of the methods we've alluded to talked about but i think the specific method matters less than just doing it right? Like that's the, I think that is the magic. The practice actually is the magic. As long as you have the ingredients, there's so many different ways around this. You just, it is sourdough. If it is a bread that is naturally leavened with nothing but water, flour, and salt. So how you get to that finish line does not matter. If you can't, I mean, you can, an old cook friend of mine always used to say this dumb saying to me, and it was, you can't argue with delicious. And I mean, it's very true. It was used for an excuse in a lot of cases, but it, I think it applies really well here. Like if your final product is good and you enjoy it, then who cares what your, like what your method is? Who cares what it looks like? Who cares? Like, you know, if it's better or worse than someone else's, like if you, if you enjoy it and your final product is something that is delicious, then you have succeeded in some regard, right? Yes, at least I, that, I, I believe that. Yeah, I, I do too. Absolutely. And going back to these porridge loaves that I made today, I'm counting them as a success-ish on the success spectrum. Because to your comment from our first episode, I didn't burn them, didn't make them inedible. And a friend of mine stopped by uh, later this afternoon and I gave one of the loaves to her. She's thinking of getting into sourdough. So we're talking about process and, and where she might start. And I said, look, I'm going to give you a, I called it a teaching loaf. And I said, because this is the reality of sourdough. I've been making it for a while and sometimes it still doesn't work out to the extent I would want it to. But I'm still going to give you this loaf. I recommend that you toast it because otherwise it's a bit dense, but it's still delicious. And she was delighted with it or appeared to be delighted with it. She was polite. Which is all you can really ask for, I guess. But <laughs> I, I think I think for a lot of people, it, who's going to turn down a, a loaf? And like yeah. I was saying earlier, it's it's a love language. Like if somebody gives you something homemade, there's, yeah. there's like thought and care and time. Like you're very aware that there was a time investment that went into that. All right. Well, let's uh, let's hear from a pro now, and we're going to stick within our province of British Columbia, but we are going to head north on the Sea to Sky Highway, and we're headed to Whistler to hear from Ed Tatton. Hi, my name's Ed Tatton, and I'm the co-founder and head baker of Bread in Whistler, BC. I've lived in Whistler for seven years with my wife, and we opened Bread in March 2019. 
We specialize in organic sourdough, only using Canadian grains. And we're 100% vegan, plant-based, and serve Elysian espresso coffee, which is roasted in Vancouver. I started making sourdough in restaurants 12 years ago. Um, as I worked as a fine dining chef, we always made everything in-house, uh, including pasta and bread, and I really got a love of sourdough. Um, I love that it's only three ingredients, so water, flour, and salt. But at the same point, it can be really complex and diverse. Uh, I'm pretty much self-taught with the sourdough, with other chefs, reading books, and just trial and error. But obviously, having the fine dining background has helped me with techniques and methods and cleanliness and all these other things that are important to be a baker. Um, if I was to give a few tips on anyone starting out as a baker, just at home, working with sourdough, or anyone looking to sort of move away from yeasted breads towards naturally leavened sourdough, I would say um, temperature is key. So get probe for the oven to make sure your oven is running at the temperature that the display tells you it is. Um, but also a temperature probe for water and the dough. So you can monitor the fermentation and check different points of the year if it's moving too fast or too slowly. I would also to say to make the, the same recipe 10 times. Uh, if you chop and change a lot, then it can be hard to manage what's gone wrong or if you've had a success and make notes as you go as well. Have a little book that you can sort of say the times and temperatures, how warm it was outside, maybe when you made it, what month or week. So that's really important. I would also say it's good to feed your starter at least once a day, but if you can, twice a day. This will keep it nice and healthy and active. Um, if you start putting it in the fridge, that's not a bad thing. If you need, you know, if you go away on holiday or something like that, it will slow the fermentation down. But if you're really looking to sort of elevate making your, your sourdough as best as it can, it's, it's best staying out of room temperature all the time. My experience with sourdough really got going when I worked as the sous chef at Alta Bistro in, in Worcester Village uh, and started playing around with sourdough at home, um, making it for friends and things like that. And I decided to uh, rent the kitchen because it wasn't used in the morning. So asked a few friends if people wanted to, you know, if they would be interested in, in buying it. Started a little Facebook group um, and it grew and grew. We started at making 30 loaves on the Wednesday morning and then it would ferment in the fridge overnight. And I would bake it on Thursday morning with the customers coming to collect. Um, this was really good experience for me because very quickly, we moved over about six months, six to eight months, to making around 130 to 150 loaves. Just me on my own, gaining the experience and lots of insights into mixing, fermentation, shaping, um, customers' favorites, and really building the brand in Whistler. Um, as I was serving as well, I got to meet customers and locals. It was good face-to-face -face contact. And it's really cool, a lot of these original customers are still very loyal and regulars at Bread in Creekside. So where to find us? Basically, we have the website, edsbread.com, and we've set up our online shop so you can pre-order and reserve your sourdough. So if you're driving up from the city or out of town and want to make sure that you get some bread, you can do that. 
Um, we're also very active on Instagram. So you can find us at Ed's Bread. So Ed's, E-D-S underscore bread, B-R-E-D. So that's on Instagram and bread slash organic sourdough on Facebook. So thanks very much. And we look forward to seeing you. Ed has offered uh, some great advice. Some of it is familiar to us from some other guests. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that stood out was his advice, don't chop and change. That's very, very consistent with uh, with what Michelle uh, just shared with us as well. And a point that stood out for me, though, when he was talking about his experience in restaurants generally and what he learned that he then uh, transitioned into his sourdough adventures and now business uh, was this notion of of cleanliness. And so that's, maybe I can get your comments on that, Greg, just generally. I don't know that people who haven't worked in professional kitchens mm-hmm. uh, understand how big a deal that is and how cooking clean uh, really informs what a lot of great cooks and chefs do. My wife would be laughing if she were here to listen to me recording this, given the state that I sometimes turn the kitchen into. But but, but what are your thoughts on that as a concept and, and specifically related to sourdough? You know, I'm really laid back with my organization and cleanliness in all aspects of my life, except for in the kitchen. Like sanitate, I, I would, I would make a di- distinction between uh, being sanitary and being clean. Like I would associate being clean with being like tidy as well and organized. And that's not necessarily me, but being sanitary is a hundred percent the yes, most non-negotiable. Thing. Non-negotiable, and it is the thing you should probably be the most concerned with when it comes to cooking at ever at all you can make yourself sick you can make people you love sick you can make people around you sick and you can also just get a subpart product if it's not sanitary because who wants to eat that so i think i think definitely there's not a there's not too much room in sourdough for error like make sure you have a clean sanitary container make sure you wash your hands in between mixing and make sure your basket is clean everything else is at a high enough heat that it doesn't matter because everything in there is dead and then the fermentation kind of takes care of the rest. But there's, Always there's important. also, yeah, important in and of itself. And I think there's a relationship between practice, if we can call it that, of cleanliness and just, huh, what am I trying to say here? It's not, uh, cooking clean is not just about cleanliness or not just about being sanitary. It's about something else too. It's about order and structure and knowing that when you go to reach for the clean bowl, the clean bowl is going to be there because you cleaned it and put it back in its place, right? So I think in addition to the sanitary benefits, it also has a procedural or, again, help me with the words here, structural benefit, something like yeah. that. Militaristic, uh, there you especially, go. In fi- especially in fine dining. And I that is where Ed and I share some experience. It's definitely something that is drilled into you, not necessarily because your food will be better but because your process will be better. That's a really good point. If you know where to reach for something, it makes you quicker, more efficient. Aside from just having sanitary and clean things to work with, if your kitchen is a jumbled mess, it's going to slow you down and it's going to maybe mean the difference between you burning something on the stove while you're rooting around in a drawer that's full of knickknacks that you have no idea where your, where your spatulas are. And in a bakery too, especially presuming that his space isn't very large. From what I've seen, it's not gigantic. You you want to be efficient with how you're storing your bread. I mean, hell, if he's storing, I don't know Alta's kitchen, but if, if he's storing 150 loaves in a kitchen walk-in, like that is still a feat of, of order and cleanliness. Tetris. He, yeah, you are, 
you need to make sure that those things are stacked in the most efficient way possible. One of the things that delighted me about Ed's clip, his recording was talking about the ongoing support that they've had, how this went from a hobby to baking for friends to, oh, let's try this, you know, roll it out initially as a business. And now some of those or many of those, it sounds like early customers are now regulars at their bakery in Whistler. So A, nice to see a community supporting a new venture. But B, this is something I've explored on earlier episodes. I'd like your thoughts on, Greg. What do you get out of it? It's wonderful from the the business owner's perspective, from the baker, the, the chef, the restaurant that you have regulars. But what do we as customers get out of being regulars? Because I think there is something to that. Community. Community. Yeah. At, yeah. It's, it's the biggest thing. Like, it's more than just lip service when you say support local, buy local, think much, much more narrowly. Bought, like made in Canada, I'm going to get flack for this. Made in Canada doesn't mean anything. If I'm supporting a community halfway across the country, it's not supporting the community where I live and where I shop and eat and work and play. The, the very social fabric of the community around you is dictated by the people who are filling it. And there, I'm sure there are so many creative, wonderful bakers out there who just don't have a venue because they're, it, maybe it wouldn't fly in their community or maybe they don't have the, the financial means to, to run something like this. And so, you know, you don't get to hear that voice. Supporting, supporting means, I mean, let's not beat around it, financial security, being able to know that you can afford to invest in a bunch of flour because you know people are going to buy it. So they're serving you and you are serving them. It's this nice trade. And it's important, and that is definitely a big part of it. But then also, look at them now. They have a bakery, and having a good bakery in your neighborhood is a wonderful thing. Like, could you imagine if there was nothing around you except for, I don't know, Amazon-branded grocery stores? They would just be, <laughs> such a, would be such a dreary existence. I think it's very important that you you support your local your local efforts to, you know, offer something to the community that is. Uh, as wonderful and as nourishing, literally nourishing as uh, as bread. Couldn't agree more. We are so excited here because Lone Wolf, uh, which is a great bakery that's existed in Seashelt for a few years, has recently opened up in Gibson's and they're now open, I think, Wednesday to Saturday, uh, right up the street from us. Couldn't be happier. Which is wonderful. And I bet it smells great too. Oh, does it ever. Yeah eating more croissants than I need. But there's a solution to that, and it is the rowing machine. <laughs> no, 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 it's certainly not cutting down on croissants. It's French butter. I heard if, if, I heard if they're made with French butter that they don't actually, they don't actually do anything bad to your body. I you like You eat as much theory. as you'd like. <laughs> okay, I'm going to yeah. test that. One of the things that I've come across in the, the food industry in general is there are, there are some people who are mentors, and they are very good at sharing knowledge. And there are some people that hold onto those secrets and will not will not help anyone else. And that is so detrimental to the growth of community. In the case of Ed, you know, he, he was renting the kitchen. I don't know what their situation was and what their agreement was, but that restaurant could have as easily just said, no, this is our business. You're not running a sub business out of here. But like being accommodating, letting someone kind of have like room to grow has sprouted now into this beautiful bakery. And that that is one thing that I definitely notice more in the sourdough community is people are less closed lipped about their methods and more willing to share. And I think, you know, that is a wonderful thing because if everybody knew how to bake bread, what a wonderful world it would be. 
<laughs> I like that. It, it certainly would be. Uh, but it, it's a really good point. And it's probably one that people outside the industry don't recognize, perhaps, is the barriers to entry. Like, you, you know, you don't just throw open a bakery. You've got to build your customer base. And how do you do that as you scale your production unless you have somewhere to do it? So kudos to the restaurant for opening up their kitchen at night. It's a really good point. So, Greg, we are moving to our final guest on the second of two fully sourdough-focused episodes. Coming full circle here back to Vancouver, BC. Let's hear now from the baker behind Sour Bros. Here is Zane Hayes. Hi, my name's Zane Hayes. I'm the chef owner of Sour Bros Bread in Vancouver, BC. My journey to the sourdough lifestyle came from my background, mostly as a chef and a caterer. We would offer this beautiful sourdough as part of our tasting menu with my company, Zane Hayes Catering and Events. When COVID-19 started to take off, we were hit with a cascade of cancellations. This really sort of upended the catering business completely and had no real idea of when or if it would recover. So sourdough bread became a real pivot to meet the pandemic head on. I actually did the math the other day and I've baked about 10,000 loaves since starting this venture back in March 2020. Even though that is a lot of practice, I'm still always blown away having to think on my feet and adapt, you know, weather conditions, variables, the environment you're baking. It's always changing no matter how closely you follow the recipe. So you really have to think on your feet. Um, one of my tips for newbies is pretty much the same as you've been hearing from all these other great sourdough minds. Treat your starter like your child. Feed it, care for it, take it for walks. We named our starter Kobayashi after the famed six-time uh, hot dog eating world champion for Japan. This really drives home the insatiable appetite of our starter and how important it is to always keep him well-fed. One of the challenging experiences I had coming into this venture back in March was uh, during the start of COVID, there was this panic buying spree of flour that really disrupted the supply chains and made it hard for bakers like me to get the ingredients I need to make the product that I sell. I couldn't really find flour in the quantity I needed anywhere. I even got so desperate at one point with orders flowing in and my flour supply dwindling. I recruited my father for his senior status to get us into stores early to purchase flour before it was completely picked clean. I have fond memories of way back driving home from Anita's Organic Mill in Chilliwack with 700 kilos of flour in the back of my small van. On the highway, you could hear the body of the wheels in the van coming together over the tiniest bumps, and it was just music to my ears, just loaded up. Sourdough has really taught me uh, a lot about patience. It's a very complex balance of yeast, bacteria, time, temperature, moisture. And ultimately, fermentation that acts on the simplest ingredients. I mean, who would have thought that flour, water, and salt could bring so much joy and mostly so much anguish to people? Yeah, so if you live in the greater Vancouver area or north or west Vancouver, head on over to www.sourbrosbread.com and check us out. We uh, bake and deliver straight to your door. Um, and when the pandemic hopefully finally sorts itself out, check us out at www.zanehayscatering.com for any of your catering needs. Thanks so much for listening.
Really interesting what Zane had to say. Here is, we've been talking a lot about people baking at home during the pandemic. Here is a business, a full-on business that did not exist before March 2020 and now does because of the pandemic. It seems sourdough could be well-suited as a business solution to various challenges too. And when I had met Zane, this was pre, pre-COVID. He had mentioned that this was a thing he was thinking about. Uh, I met him working for a caterer as well. And then our, our paths never crossed again. And then COVID happened and didn't think twice about it. And then an article came out in one of the news outlets talking about his business. So yeah, again, kind of like with, with a couple of the other guests we've spoken to, really like life has kind of like necessi- or necessitated this development and growth into sourdough. And now it's a lifestyle. It's very much a part of his life. And now this is a thing that he is doing. And I mean, not thanks to COVID. I don't want to thank COVID for anything, (laughs) but you know, the stars aligned and it was a viable option for him. I was comforted to hear as well that after uh, 10,000 loaves, he still has challenges and has to roll with the punches, think on his feet. And coming back to what we said at the very top of the episode, it's just an ongoing pursuit, isn't it? It's never going to be perfect. And we are never going to be perfect bakers. No, right. And isn't that the, uh, isn't that the metric, the arbitrary metric people like to throw out? Like 10,000 hours is what it takes to, to master Become something. an expert. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that he mentioned the the flour, the great flour shortage of 2020. And his solution to it. I felt so vindicated sitting up here on my throne of grains, uh, looking down at everybody who was flourless because I decided to support local and buy, buy my grains directly through, through farms and their available CSAs doesn't make me better. It just makes me thinking ahead of the game. But that is that being able to be dynamic like that is a, a great quality in a baker because many of your variables can change. But then also it, it's a good life skill. And back to our meta commentary on human human existence and sourdough, it's like meditation and training for real life, rolling with these punches and just learning to be dynamic and make the best of a bad batch of lemons is uh is what is what sourdough is teaching him and it's i think it was it's what it teaches a lot of us from time to time i know it sounds a little hokey but i you know i firmly believe that to be true i agree with you i i, I absolutely do and i love that it produces these great stories for us right that's another th- and really why i started the podcast was to share stories with people because i think you know working away in the kitchen just such great funny amazing things happen that weren't getting past the kitchen. And uh, I, I now have an image of a of a creaking van with 700 kilos of flour in the back of it, you know, rounding the corners. And that just wouldn't happen without sourdough in the time of the pandemic. Dusting out. And the one thing he didn't mention too is he must have some really good friends because who helped him unload that flour? And I <laughs> hope it wasn't just him by himself because that is, that is quite a feat. That is quite a feat. Zane's a fit guy, but uh, yeah, nobody should have to move 700 kg of flour alone. Greg, this brings us to an end of our, what have we been calling it? Meta-analysis of sourdough, our existential examination. Sorry? Meta, uh, we need a better name for it. Sourdough, colon, a meta-commentary on human existence. I think that's what we would go with. (laughs) Sold. It's been uh, such fun doing both of these episodes with you feels like so far as a video connection can very reminiscent of the good old days at Burdock and Co. So thank you again for being here. Really appreciate it. That's fun. I'm always game to nerd out about sourdough. I can talk about it for hours. 
Here we are at the end of two really fun episodes. Thanks to Maurizio, Michelle, Ed, and Zane, and of course to my co-host Greg. These were really, really fun episodes, which very clearly I could not have done on my own. Thanks to all of my guests and my co-host over both episodes for being here with me. A request for you, please leave a written review of the show, particularly if you liked it. Uh, Star ratings and reviews really do help others to find the show. I'd really appreciate that. Of course, I love to hear from you, so if you have a question or a comment for the show, perhaps a suggestion for a guest or a topic idea, just get in touch. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Cheftimony. You can find me on LinkedIn under my own name, that's Graham McLennan, or you could always just send me an email. Those go to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for now on the topic of sourdough. Thank you for being here with me. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you two Fridays from now, right here on Cheftimony. <laughs>